today's guest takes a very different approach to criminal justice work than most. He's had a very different route into academia and now works across a multitude of creative projects to achieve the impact that he wants. If you're interested in critical race theory and an alternative approach to criminal justice research, this is the episode for you. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. My guest today is Dr. Martin Glynn, a critical race criminologist at Birmingham City University. But that doesn't come close to telling the full story. Dr. Martin is a writer, a dramatist, a data storyteller, the writer in residence at the National Justice Museum, and he is and has been much more besides. So, Dr. Martin Glynn, welcome to Justice Focus. Great to have you. Yeah, greetings. Good to be here. Good to see you. Uh, we look, yeah. you know something, we look quite similar, actually, <laughs> but it's just that my hair is white and yours is not. So, oh, well, uh, I've still, so. there's, there's bits there. That's why I've shaved it off. So that, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at me, uh, it's completely different. But anyway, it's good to be here. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And um, so there's, there's so many different things I want to ask you about. It seems to me that you've had such a hugely diverse career. And, um, you know, I know you've, written about the experience of men in prison, but then also poetry books. And you've thought deeply about black masculinities and prison masculinities, but then you've also written for TV and produced radio. Is it that you, you like to try completely different things or you have a, you no, see it as a very th- I, the, through the line? The thing is, yeah, yeah. I, um, when I look back on my career, everybody asks me, they think, have I planned it? The answer is no. Yeah. Um, I had a mother who told me in life things are never straightforward. So she's always said, mm. always have something to fall back on. Mm. So if you do a chronology of my career, when there's been a change in direction, it's because either the contract's ended or the project's come to an end or I've moved on. Mm. It just so happens that I'm fortunate that I've managed to develop a skill set on each facet that I do. So Mm. I've been published and produced in everything that I've ever done. Um, I can't decorate. I can't garden. I can't fix cars. I don't like football. You know, I'm really crap at most things, (laughs) if I'm being honest. But um, I'm very good at being creative. I'm very good. Mm. I'm Mm. a communication specialist, really. So all of my stuff is about poetry, comedy, writing, art, and I can look back on my 40-odd years in terms of work, and the one thing that underpins it is communication. Mm. And I think the only reason I set out on that journey, because my argument was when I was at school, I was very funny, but that's because I was skinny. I used to get bullied a lot, and the only way I could survive is through comedy. Yeah. But I was also very clever, and I was into classical music at school. But being black and into classical music, that wasn't the greatest thing. Mm-hmm. I was into Charles Dickens and Shakespeare. But what I realised is being different got me attention. So mm-hmm. when I was at school, unlike a lot of you know a lot of my black friends, that they were just tough and hard, and actually played up to that stereotype because that's all they knew. Mm-hmm. 
I got a lot more attention by doing stuff that nobody else would do. So a black person like in Shakespeare, a black person like in classical music. Yeah. Um, but I also had an attention span that was quite small. Yeah. So I'd get bored quite easy. You know, and so, for instance, I, when I started doing stand-up comedy, I do the traditional thing, learn, you know, you get some jokes, you learn them, and you go on stage. And then I realised I was bored of that. It was too easy. Mm. So I then would go on stage with nothing. I just walk on. <laughs> wow. And the challenge was, how can I, for 15 minutes, just blag it? On that sounds stage? terrifying. Saying things with spoken word. Um, when I went into academia, I mean, everybody thinks, why did you you know, going to academia. Mm. Um, it started out because I'd been a community activist for so long and a brethren of mine come along and he just said, yo, mine, your time as a practitioner has come to an end. You need to go into university. Mm. Now, I didn't have a first degree. So I said, you're mad. Going into university, that time I was like, I was in my 50s. Right. So right. all that time I was just doing my thing. Mm -hmm. Suddenly the community say, look, mine, you need to go and get qualified. So I ain't going to get qualified. Why? <laughs> anyway, my mum died, left me some money, and I just walked into university one day, and I just put £4,000 on the table. And I right. said, look, give me a master's. And they said, well, have you got a degree? I said, no. <laughs> and they said to me, well, you might have to consider doing a degree first. I said, look, I've worked in criminal justice for 35 years. Mm. I've got children, and I'm not going to go into an undergraduate class with people my kids' age. I said, here's £4,000. Put me on the master's. Right. Anyway, needless to say, the money my mum left, I bought a couple of thousand pounds worth of books. Uh, and I did the master's in six weeks, six months. Wow. Got a, got, a, got a distinction. I thought, is this what it's all about? So I left it. Wow. I was like, well, I've got it now. I went back to the community. Says, Look, I got a master's. Mm. Anyway, the phone said, you want to do a PhD? <laughs> so my, my first thing is like, you're mad. PhD? Yeah. Are you serious? Anyway... My friends from the streets were saying, Martin, I mean, getting a master's one thing, but there's no way a man like you is going to be able to hack a PhD. Yeah, anyway, bit. so I thought, let me double up my options. So I applied and got a Winston Churchill Fellowship. And I got the, the PhD and the Winston Churchill Fellowship at the same time. I thought, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah. So my friend said, why don't you put the Winston Churchill Fellowship into your PhD? So okay. I included going to America to do research into the PhD. Mm, mm. Um, so I've, I, I've always taken the position that, it's no word of a lie, in 60-odd years on this earth, I've never claimed a penny off the state. Yeah. And that's because when I'm not being academic, I'm doing visual art. And I'm not doing visual art, I'm writing poetry. When I'm not writing poetry, mm -hmm. I'm writing songs. When I'm not writing songs, I'm writing a screenplay. Because I hate the thought of... It's a bit like if I come to you like as your cousin and said, look, can you lend me £200? I don't want to do that. I can't stand being dependent on anybody. Yeah. So it's been expedient. It just so happens mm. that over the last 40 years, everything that I've worked at, I've, I've become that. So mm. I've, I've done stand-up professionally. I've done poetry. I've done all of this professionally. But what underpins it is just one thing, which is I refuse to become a house slave. Yeah. And so self-reliance, you know, I've traveled a lot. And the one thing that I've learned from indigenous peoples is how people can take tree bark and make it into sculptures. And, you know, I've learned that from my family in the Caribbean is how resourceful people are. 
people in prison, you've worked in prison, mm-hmm. the, the resourcefulness of people in prison. Yeah. But they did it through adverse means. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to sell drugs mm. to make money. So I look at it as I'm just an example of um, I'm the all-you-can-eat buffet academic. You know, there's the huge things on the menu yeah. and you just pick one. I want to try everything. But, but I, I also um, don't take myself too seriously. I take yeah. what I do seriously, but I... I have little interest in me. You know, I'm just a brain. If I was, I must Trekkie. I love Star Trek. Right. So basically, I'm a brain in a jar. <laughs> That's okay. it. You know, and, yeah. and it just happens my brain, I'm more like Sheldon Cooper than Alice Cooper. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, so, so I'm. That, that's what I'm yeah. like. So I, there's no formula. There's been no plan. Um, I've just tried everything. Yeah. And I'm still doing that. Well, you've, there's so many things just from that. It's sent my mind in lots of different directions. So I want to ask you about sort of the combination of, of your PhD and comedy and whether you've sort of brought those two things together. But you just said a minute ago how you don't want to be a house slave. And that's that's a very sort of evocative and powerful thing that's loaded with, with lots of significance. I just wanted to check what you meant by that. Well, what it means is, is that in terms of slavery, house and field slaves... We're very clear, you know, the, the, the field slave um, put into the field, oppressed, uh, had to battle with the weather, the environment, beatings, uh, defiance, resilience. Our slaves, on the other hand, wanted a slightly distant relationship from the roots of where they come from mm. and so opted for just as much oppression but slightly easier. But a slave's a slave, whether you're a house slave or a field slave. Sure. But the difference is, it's the difference between like our class differential between working class and middle class people. You know, th- th- compared to upper class people, they're still looked down upon, but mm. they're very different. And the word I suppose I would use, because I use that as an analogy people relate to, but mm. I have a real strong sense of authentic identity. Mm. And on the streets and in public spaces, I can be myself. Within institutions, as Irving Goffman talks about total institutions, um, there is a form of social control on human beings in public institutions Mm. that makes you compliant, which is contradictory to what academic study is. Academic study is about curiosity, it's about investigation, it's about discovery. But within a neoliberal environment, Mm. that that is beaten out of you because it's now about metrics, it's now about how much money you're going to bring in. You know... The people that I read, um, when I grew up on people like Irving Goffman, uh, Howard Becker, you know, g- great writers, mm. but they didn't have that kind of pressure. They, yeah. I know, I've known people that have spent 15 years doing a piece of qualitative research, a piece of ethnography, and it was accepted in the Chicago School of Sociology because that's the way it was at the time. Mm. When I came into academia, remember, I came in in my 50s, so I didn't have, I wasn't that, um, 27 year old who'd done A levels and masters and then managed to get a PhD. I, I didn't come from that. Mm. I came from a, a massive lived experience. So when I got into academia, what I realized is there was a sense of you have to dress a certain way, sound mm. a certain way. Mm. And I didn't come from that background. So I'd be in meetings and I'd hear a particular protocol that sounded like keep off the grass. Like, 
why am I keeping off the grass? God made grass. You're telling me to keep, why I have to keep off the grass? Yeah. Oh, well, because it's against, no, it's not against, the, who said the law's right? Yeah. And it would be like that in a team's meeting where somebody would say something. And I'd say, excuse me, can I ask a question? Well, why, why is it like that? Mm, yeah. Well, Martin, we're not here to discuss, and I said, well, we are here to discuss that because yeah. I don't understand what that's about. Yeah. And so, the thing about the house slave is the house slave, by and large, never questioned because they swapped a lack of questioning and compliance for privilege, mm. whereas the field slave never did. The field slave was the original ethnographer. They were observational. They made sense of their reality, and they would let the experience speak for itself, yeah. whereas you get to the master's house and you take your shoes off, and who are you looking at? And why are you dressed that way? And, mm. Well, here's a sandwich and you can eat it. Mm. And so I, I feel that for any researcher, qualitative researcher, who believes in human and civil rights, has to operate in their own authentic way. But mm. as I've seen, salaries and rewards within those institutions restrict the confidence people have around authenticity because it's very evident mm. authenticity never gets rewarded mm. and and from that perspective why me being a, a poet and an artist and other things comes handy because i'm never held captive yeah. to the expectation within those institutions and i think that one of the things that constantly comes up with the younger academics to say well martin how do you manage to just be the way that you are yeah in this institution. And when I unpack that I do 20 different things and that I don't live in fear and that I study organizational protocols, I kind of understand my rights. Mm. And when I understand them, I assert them. They ask, I mean, I'm not in the uni at university. So they, the, the first thing they said is, when you get uni, you need to join the union. Mm. I said, well, why? Well, if you need representation. And I said, well, I've studied the law in HR. And I can represent myself because even in a court of law, if I've studied my case, I can defend myself. Mm -hmm. But I said, for me, if the principle is based on my difference, which is racialized, then until a union can demonstrate its positionality around race and its evidence to support race in defending black academics, then mm -hmm. you're not coming in because that's predominantly what I'm always facing. Mm. Now I'm 63 and I'm looking at, I, I'm, one example is COVID-19. The rumor mill is like, Martin, are they going to get rid of you because of economic downturn? Right. Now, everybody, you know, somebody under 30 would say, oh, this is a travesty and we need a campaign. I said, stop. I'm 63. They need to save money. I said, ask me what I want. I said, well, what do you want? I said, I just want to feel useful. So even if the university got rid of me in terms of paid salary, I can always come back as a visiting lecturer. I can always, I can always be a research fellow and make mm. my own independent research money and come back to the department. And I said, you know, don't make a campaign out of my age. Mm. I said, being 63, I just want to get up and feel useful. Yeah. And if, if it's in the interest of the university to give my job to a younger person who's got 30 more years of experience, then I'm cool. The difference is, it's like drug deal, it's a trade-off. So if the university wants to get rid of me, they offer me a deal. It's not just severance. Right, right. It's yeah. severance with benefits. Mm. 
So what I do at university, I make sure, I mean, I'm doing in October, I'm doing a, the British radiography conference. Okay. Because of my knowledge around, I do a lot of development work for public health and all these other areas. Mm. So I'm known in public health, business, law. So I operate as a criminologist across every discipline, mm. which means there's about 10 disciplines at my university that if, they, if there was a job going, they would offer me that job. Right. So what I'm dealing with, I'm the same person in yeah. academia. I, um, the funny thing is, is, I suppose you call it the race syndrome. I can talk about race and business. Mm-hmm. I can talk about race and law. I can talk about... So therefore, yeah. I just talk about what I know applied in different contexts. The relevance of it is... But I also can teach LGBT issues. Mm-hmm. I can also teach transnational organized crime. Mm-hmm. I can teach gender and crime. Why? Because I just love everything. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've had situations where, where faith is concerned where um, where I might have to talk about Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't take a position as a Muslim. I take a position where my own position is, is a mixed-race uh, 60-year-old. But what I do is use participatory approaches. So I argue that it, this is not actually about me. This is about us. Mm. So what do we feel about this issue? So I also have developed some pedagogical ways of working that nobody else uses. I use music in my teaching. I use hip-hop. I use film. Um, The reason is, is because my unique selling point is I use every medium I can. And people say to me, how do you measure your success Mm -hmm. academically? Not by the amount first. I measure it based on the register. Mm -hmm. And you can see that I'll have 11-week attendance right up to like 4 week 12 full compliment. So from that point of view, my mom told me many years ago that when you, what you do when you're a child, you do the same thing when you're an adult. The same thing with doing all of this stuff as a young person, I'm doing the same thing now. It's, it's yeah. not changed. Yeah. And that's my way of accepting that I'm just, uh, this is just the way I am. But can I ask you, do, do you feel a tension? Because it seems like you don't feel any pressure from the establishment to to conform to the to the normal ways that we measure impact on that kind of thing and you you know you do you do do your work in so many different ways but do you do you think that there is a future that's possible where the university will start to actually value these different ways of, no, of gaining no, impact no no uh, and the reason being is is that if you look at it, it uh, if you look at it away from race if you look at the whole teaching and learning, the industry of teaching and learning has expanded. You've got third space education where education can take place in cafes and bars. You've got institutional education. One of the things that COVID-19 has done, it's moved beyond the digital space and questioned whether or not working in these institutions is effective. Mm. As an example, let's take academic supervision. When I supervise students, We don't have enough space in the building to have a Mm one-on-one. With teams, it's far easier to support a student with their dissertation Mm -hmm. because they've got your undivided attention. Mm -hmm. The relevance of it is is that I also develop spaces in the community. So I look at it as 
if we take a young person from 19 to 21, what do they want? Now, contemporary neoliberal academics feel that everybody wants a job. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fine. But people come to me because they want to find purpose in their life because the purpose in their life becomes their vocation. Mm. So I teach, I'm more of an academic vocation educator. Mm. What that actually means is that the institution is more liable to say, Martin, can we come and do stuff in the community in the spaces you work? So at my age now, I'm now going into a space now where I'm asked to develop unusual ways of looking at employability, mm. uh, confidence building. I wrote a mindfulness guide for students. Now, okay. that was because during COVID-19, students were depressed. I started writing poetry to my students and out of that produced an anthology that went around the university. But the reason that the status quo is uphold, upheld, mm. and there's a reason for that, and that's what Irving Goffman talks about, is the fact that the vast majority of people in public institutions are compliant based on the construction and the governance of the institution. Mm. Um, because in your subconscious, it's like Darren Brown. You hear yeah. words like annual review. Yeah. You hear words like, um, well, you can't go on holiday whilst we're in marking season. Um, you hear things like... Um, you do realise that if you become a senior lecturer, you have additional administrative responsibilities and the layers and the layers. Mm. And then you realise because you've just bought a £170,000 house and a new car, you have to resource it. Yeah. And the moment that you say, I'll do that, whereas I did something that I get slagged off for all the time. I should have been a professor years ago. Right. But I chose to be a lecturer. I've been a lecturer ever since, mm. which means that you can't give me that additional responsibility that mm. all those others have. Now, the argument is, because people are single issue based in terms of employment, this is, well, mine, you do realize the differential between a lecturer and a professor is about 20, 25 grand. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yeah, but I can earn 25 grand independently as a consultant for half the less stress. Yeah. So why do, I, why do I need to earn £55,000 a year with one job, with you know, £200,000 worth of stress, mm -hmm. a staff team, governance, when I can just teach, do a bit of research, and do freelance work and make up the deficit, mm. if your argument is economic. Yeah. But if the argument is less stress, then I want a post that's commensurate with that. Yeah. Now, what do every strategy document in HE? We need to be creative in the way we engage students. We need to be more innovative in our approach. We need to ensure that the students' aspirations is connected to community. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm big in the community. I do comedy, poetry. So when I do it, why students come back time and time again is because what I've understood, and it's the Starbucks principle, what I do is create a customer experience. Right. So when students come to me, they get an experience. And it's the experience that creates the motivation for them to come back and succeed. Mm -hmm. So what I've proven is not only can I close the attainment gap, 
but I've also demonstrated that I don't have to make race an issue to motivate students to engage who happen to be black, white. It doesn't make no difference. Mm. And it's not that their difference doesn't matter. I know how to work with their difference. Yeah. And I start with having a classroom that is positional. So if, if you come into my class and you're a 22-year-old young Muslim female, that's your position. Mm -hmm. If you are transgender, um, a hyper-masculine, transgender, uh, bipolar, diabetic, that's your position. Yeah. So by having positionality in the classroom, then you have a community mm. that argues from its position but has to learn tolerance yeah. in the way that responds to the people's difference. Whereas most of my colleagues don't have the insight, skills, or expertise yeah. to be able to navigate and transcend cultural boundaries. I think that's so and interesting. So they need a lot of guidance. Whereas from my point of view, and I go back to working in prisons, I'm one of the few people that have worked in prisons with mixed sex offender, non-sex offender groups. Mm. Navigating that, uh, rival gang members in the same group, working having prison officers in the same group of prisons. Mm -hmm. So all of my years in prison taught me massively about how to navigate difference in areas where people say you couldn't do it, mm -hmm. which means because I could deliver the results of that, the institution gives me more latitude Mm. Some people would say, I'm a break I never break rules. I don't need to. Mm. I can subvert the rule. Yeah. <laughs> Subversion is not breaking the rule. Yeah. As a, a classic example is, um, all right, here's a classic example of the way I subvert the rule in the mm. classroom. You're not supposed to eat during lectures. That's the thing that lectures say. You, you can't come in with food. Mm -hmm. Well, some people are diabetic. Yeah. And also, uh, during Ramadan, Somebody may really need a glass of water, even though they're not supposed to. But the way that I get over it is to say to my students, you can eat anything in my classes, providing it doesn't make a sound. Yeah. So they will bring chocolate in and think they can put chocolate and it melts. But they can't because it will make a sound. So I subvert the rule, Yeah. not impose it, because I'm not into the punitive side of the classroom. I want you to be there because you want to be there. Yeah. And so the other thing that I also do is we have a rhyme challenge. Okay. So what happens is I will, I will spit a couple bars at the beginning of a session, and anybody that feels that can beat me can order me to do something in the class that <laughs> everybody will laugh at. Yeah. And you're always going to get someone to say, yo, yo. And then so it will be me facing off with someone. Yeah. But the moment they can't win, they realize, yo, Martin, all right, I'm cool. Yeah, you're right. So <laughs> even the way that I impose discipline yeah. subverts the rule, not imposes it. Yeah. I don't break yeah. the rule. I, so so all I'm just trying to say is authenticity requires courage, self-determination. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Is it popular? If I said to people at uni, who wants to join my line, it's not a lot of people taking it up. Yeah. So so in a way, but I, I can't apologize mm -hmm. for what people can and can't do because if you've got 17 and 18 year old nephews in my class and you're paying money you want them to have the best experience yeah and now we've got to create a digital experience par none so i know that when we go back in october i'm going to be one of them lectures that students never forget online because of the way that i can mm -hmm. i can say to students there's 40 videos of me on youtube and stuff they can do that we can play music 
So it's the same as what I was like when I was a child. You yeah. know, I'm just an imaginative. I can understand why I drove my mum nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean. So yeah, yeah so I hope that answers that question. <laughs> no, well, that's yeah, crazy interesting. And I really liked what you said about you know thinking about the positionality of different people and and I think yeah, lots of people don't don't recognise that that they, even they themselves have a positionality. They just they, there is one way of thinking about things. There's one way of teaching, uh, or there's one way of being an academic, whatever it might be, and that sort of bulldozer through with it i think it's yeah it's really refreshing the way you talk about thinking about that in the classroom and i mean on a on a slightly tangential but it's kind of an important point you mentioned trying to address um the bme attainment gap in in learning and i, I mean i hate that phrase anyway because i think that puts the emphasis on the student when actually the problem is probably more to do with the institution not not uh, serving those students properly. But I just wondered what your thoughts were on sort of that that broader issue. Then well, we, we... we had a situation recently, which is a very current situation, where um, I teach on black studies, mm-hmm. and um, it's a very different experience. But in the in the context of so called mainstream, mm. um, I was asked to develop a module on race and crime, and it's explicit race and crime. Mm-hmm. So one of the colleagues come back and said, well, you need to look at protected characteristics for all the other categories of individuals. Yeah. Because they made the assumption that race and crime is just black. Yeah. And I said, white people have whiteness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So therefore, race as a social construct, traditionally, in order for white people to castigate black people, white people never put themselves in the category of race. They yeah. just put black people in it. Yeah. So I look at the the attainment gap like the bell curve. It's historically driven. Mm-hmm. It's politically driven. Because realistically speaking, the politics of the attainment gap, you speak to employees. I don't see employers complaining about the attainment gap. I don't see them say, oh, we need more black people. But then George Floyd happens and Black Lives Matter. So I look at it, it's interest convergence. I've always contested the attainment gap. What I have said is is that white privilege excludes. And in the exclusion, certain groups will be excluded more than others. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at critical race theory, if you look at how it's applied in education or or more critical perspectives in education, the assessment for attainment differs. If I can get an inner-city black person who come out of jail for robbery, and Mm -hmm. I can get them to sit in a place, a university, for three or four years, Mm. and they get a third and they never go and commit another crime and they go on and get married and raise some kids, well, they socially have attained Mm. because they've gone from a position of as an offender to a non-offender. What we're really talking about is fodder for the economy. Well, if black people are excluded from so-called mainstream economics, so-called employment, why the hell am I educating black people in that context? Mm. So therefore, when I'm dealing with people who suffer from the attainment gap, what I build in is an additional component, which is entrepreneurship, independence. Yeah. So therefore, a black student or a student I work with who develops those additional bits actually 
doesn't have an attainment gap. Mm. But if the university says we need 25% of non-white students to get first, on what basis are they justifying their argument other than the capitation they get from the government increases based on the amount of first they get? Mm. That's the politics of the argument. Now, how I convey that... See, you've got to remember, the average lecturer is like in a secondary school, you're sitting in the staff room complaining about the head teacher. Mm-hmm. Or if it, I had my way. And then when the head teacher comes in in a staff meeting, everybody goes quiet. Yeah. I don't do that. I'm fortunate that I've got a very big profile in the media. Mm. So when I have a member of conversation with the, the dean or associate, whatever they, the big titles are, I just tell them straight. Let's have a conversation or else I'll write a blog in The Guardian or The Times to yeah. pick your battle. Mm. Because what you're really talking about is speaking truth to power. Mm. And I believe that the attainment gap has been created through a whole series of factors. It's too complex to just suddenly say black people are failing. The same way with the BAME crisis. Mm. But that's because the way that white people frame race has nothing to do with race, it's yeah. to do with whiteness. Yeah. Because on one level, we talk about the attainment gap for black people, yet working class white men, there's just no attainment because they don't come. Yeah. So I look at it, that to me is an issue about uh, speaking truth to power. Mm. In black studies, one of the central differences with black studies as a degree, black studies students' commitment is to transform community. So the, the degree is structured more of a participatory approach to mm. higher education than actually more traditional academic approaches. But what nobody talks about, which is what Elijah Anderson talks about, is navigating white spaces. Mm. Mm. White spaces is as much about the canteen, it's about the library. So therefore, the psychological impact of navigating a white space is enough to get you say, I'm not coming in today, or I don't want to do that. Now, with COVID-19, They've worked out which students can come into the building, which students can't. Now we're going to be able to see that if black students who don't come into the building actually do better by learning on an online experience, when you do the subtraction, you can then say the experience that they have in the building Mm. of navigating that white space, because the the virtual space is not a white space. It's a digital space. Mm. And they navigate that much more different. They're much more proficient, they're much more competent, they're in control, they're, they've got quite a lot of control of the process, whereas mm. the traditional, I'm the expert at the front, you're the student, that doesn't work for black students because mm. they get out and a policeman's going to stop them, trouble on a bus. Yeah. So when you look at the power dynamics between diverse students and lecturers, some of that attainment gap has nothing to do with the intelligence of the student. It's mm. to do with the power dynamics that a student can't navigate. Yet, when it comes to um, autism, when it comes to physical disability, universities are far more receptive to understanding that and mm. make more, um, like with blind students, you know, you don't turn around and say to a blind student, look, look at the board, uh, what am I look? What, what, what's on the slide right now? You don't do that. Mm. But with black students, and I, I know during Ramadan, and I've seen this, mm-hmm. I very seldom do I see a white colleague will structure a lecture, a two-hour lecture, to accommodate students going through Ramadan. Mm. They very seldom will structure in-house presentations knowing the students going through Ramadan. What I do 
is I get all the students together and I say, all right, who's going through Ramadan? Yeah. And they'll put their hands up and I say, right, three weeks in, where do you want to go? And they'll say, you know, Martin, I don't put me on at midday because the likelihood is I might be sleeping in bed. Mm. I'm so tired. So can you put me on later on? So we make sure that we build in Ramadan to an assessment. Mm. Mm. What that does for a student, it's like, oh, my God, he's valuing yeah. where I'm coming from. Therefore, I'm going to turn up on time because he's giving me what I need. Yeah. Black students, I had, I had a situation just before lockdown where I was asking about, you know, I'd, I'd just written a new single and I said, I'm going to perform it. I said, anybody, you know, spit a couple bars. Mm. Anyway, I did this performance and afterwards there was about a dozen students stayed behind. That because of the content of the lyric, for the first time, students opened up about one was going through a murder trial with their partner and this, that, and the other. <laughs> so placing value and you've got the Gollum effect, which is um, the Gollum effect is like Gollum from Lord of the Rings, yeah. which is yeah. where you have an ugly attitude as a teacher and low expectations. But you have the Pygmalion effect, and the Pygmalion effect is where you you connect and motivate your students through a range of different means. So mm. the attainment gap would be better, or it'd be massively reduced if there was a greater respect and understanding mm. for the diverse nature of your students. But what happens is people operate in a binary sense. They'll say, look, I'm heterosexual, you're gay. I'm white, you're black. Mm. Um, I like meat, you're a vegetarian. As opposed to, I'm a black person. I'm bigoted. You know, I've got my, but you know, I, I, anybody that don't like mature cheddar cheese, uh, they're not coming to my house because that's what I have. You know, <laughs> yeah. That's really, you know, uh, I'm bigoted. So that's my, what's your bigotry? What I'm dealing with is, but to do that, you really have to have a sense of community. And I go back to prison. You know, it's like when you work with a sex offender, you, as much as you may hate them, mm. that you can't do that in prison. Yeah. You've got to say, yo, so how are you doing? All right. So what we're going to do next? So, I also think that one of the protected characteristics that nobody talks about is human rights. Because if the attainment okay. gap is based on your racialized difference, that's a, that's a characteristic based on your human rights. Because you're not treated as human, you're treated as the other. Mm. So I would say that if they're looking at protected characteristics, they need to ensure that everybody's human rights is protected. But unfortunately, some human rights are prioritized above others. So for me... I'm not dismissive of the evidence that shows there's a gap. What I'm dismissive of is the excuses people give when other areas like NHS, prisons, we can't do that. You cannot mm. do that. You mm. know in prison education, you have to get every learner comes in. There could be a sex offender, armed robber. Mm -hmm. Their categories are different, but you still have to afford them the same courtesy. So I look yeah. at it, text common sense, but sense is never common. So that's that. That's yeah. that question. <laughs> oh yeah, a lot to lots to take in there. And, and you mentioned, um, you know, you you, you talk about how you will always speak truth to power, but also I've been listening to some. You have, you've you created a, a short podcast series earlier on during COVID lockdown, which is called Lyrics from Lockdown, which yeah. I really enjoyed. And in that, you rather than talking about 
talking truth to power, you talk about speaking truth to history. And I wondered if yeah. you'd want to speak a little bit about that. Yeah, that came about because um, people talk about speaking truth to power, but speaking truth to power comes at certain historical moments. Mm -hmm. Now, getting older, I thought as a legacy statement, because what happens when I'm dead? I can't speak truth to power anymore. Mm -hmm. So from a, a generative perspective, my, my feeling is, is that speaking truth to history is based on that premise that when I pass away, history will show. And so therefore, when I've passed my work on Spotify, I, I believe passionately that my work should speak for me. Mm -hmm. I, you know, look at Kanye West. If Kanye West let his music speak for him, you'd say he's a brilliant producer, he's a brilliant musician. Yeah. But when he speaks, he's a, he's a very, um, he's straight out of a Greek tragedy. Mm -hmm. Yes, he's very, he's like Oedipus, yeah. to tell you the truth. He's very much like Oedipus as a, as a character. So I look at it. Speaking truth to history is what do you want to get remembered for? And so that when your work is brought back up, whether it's on Instagram, Spotify, that will remain how I've spoken to history. Mm. The piece I did about George Floyd and the other one, which is um, The Revolution Shall Not Be COVID, mm. you know, these are statements, they're rhetorical statements that I make as a way of saying, at this particular moment in time, I said this, I said it in this way, and I said it about this. Mm. So that when somebody comes to that five years from now, they will have a, not a true record, my truth. Yeah. That will say at this time, and they'll say, hold on, why mention George Floyd? George Floyd, oh, wasn't he murdered in 2000 and such and such? And hold on a minute, that beat that Martin's using, that was the kind of beat that came out then. So the construction and the framing of it mm -hmm. encapsulates a moment and a fragment in history that won't talk to power because the racis of that history is to enable someone to pick it up, to enable them to go and talk to power. Because say, yo, this is what happened five years ago. I don't want to do this again. This, this, use this to speak. Yeah. And I think that people are disempowered from speaking truth to history because I think people are frightened to take that kind of position. I believe spiritually that I'm going to get judged for my work I've done whilst I'm alive. I don't know what's right or wrong. I don't know what is the truth. Mm. What I do know is, is my own subjective expression mm. needs to be judged within a social, political, and historical context. Yeah. And I do believe that we make history. It's just that I was raised to believe that the only people that made history were white. Yeah. Well, that's not true. On Spotify, I'm the only person, I'm the only academic who does what I do on Spotify. I've set so many firsts. But because I thought, oh, do I really deserve to take this? I'm not, I, I'm not like Kanye West, which is a star. Mm. I'm just somebody who creatively, I'm a create, I use creative expression. So to me, I'm trying to encourage people in your legacy work. Yeah. That if you believe in what you're saying, 
and you really believe it, whether you're right or wrong, let history decide. And in doing that, I alleviate, I don't have to worry about me trying to get people in my lifetime to say, we, yes, Martin, we believe in what you say. I don't really care. Mm. Let history judge it. Let your grandchildren come to my work, come back to you and say, you know something, Dr. Glynn, you got it wrong. Mm-hmm. If I turn around and say what I'm saying is true without people investigating what I'm saying, then I'm perpetuating the same kind of propaganda as what people have done with me. Yeah. Because white people have spoke truth to history and what it was a bunch of distorted myths, but I believed it. But I've used my intellectual gifts to disprove and investigate. So I'm grateful to white people for giving me that journey to disprove a lot of what they said. But on the other side, they've also given me a lot of opportunity to say, yeah, they they were right. There's some, you know, it's funny you hear that statement from some black, well, I can't take white people. And you think, in in a way, it's a weird thing to say. Mm. I understand why we say it. I predicate it by putting a prefix, some white people. Mm-hmm. Because there's some things that I'm exposed to that white people gave the world. Mm-hmm. And I like it. I mean, I like Shakespeare. Yeah. But I don't like somebody telling me that Shakespeare was the greatest writer in the world. Because that's like saying he was white. Da, da. Nah, but he was a great writer. I like his work. Mm-hmm. But I also like Jay-Z. You know, I also, I, as an example, I can't stand coriander. Right? <laughs> I don't know what it is, right? Coriander drives me nuts, yeah. right? And white colleagues will say, but mine, you should like coriander because you like seasoning and spices. Yeah. I said, but I can't stand coriander. <laughs> and the thing is, like Marmite, some people like Marmite, yeah. others hate it. I hate Marmite. I can't. To me, mayonnaise, who created mayonnaise? What is that all about? <laughs> My point being, though, is in actuality, history will show millions of people like mayonnaise. Mm. So as much as I can say mayonnaise is awful, yeah. well, yeah. actually, history will show millions of people put mayonnaise on a burger and whatever it is with chips. So I'm saying that our work, like most spiritual people, most um, philosophers mm-hmm. need to stand out of the way of your ego and let history decide what your mm-hmm. contribution was. Yeah. Because one of the falsehoods of academia, you have to demonstrate with a PhD you contribute to knowledge. Well, how do you de- demonstrate you contribute to knowledge? Not why you're alive. Not why you're alive, because the peer review system edits everything that you do to position yourself in an ideological position of that journal. Mm. Therefore, there is no freedom of expression. There's no Somebody doesn't come to your article without understanding this is a four-star journal. Yeah. Some of my best... I, I actually don't write... My, my two new books i got coming out, they're not academic books. They're essays. Mm. Yeah. Because I, I don't... It's not that I don't want the imposition, but let the audience decide. Yeah. Or let me have a different audience who may decide. You know, academics are not my audience. They never have been because um, the, the I, I can tell you this. Give me a hip-hop lyric to talk about my oppression. Then try somebody to say um, 
it's an article really, you know, um, the psychological impact of Section 60 on young black men yeah. in Brixton between the, you know, 1981 and 80. Now, that's great from a historical point of view, but it doesn't really talk to the way Grandmaster Flash did with the message to actually show me the social conditions mm. that I was going through that made me angry. That that line, don't push me till I'm close to the edge. Mm. I think that's a brilliant line because that's what I felt. So I look at it, speaking truth to history is let history decide my contribution. And if your grandchildren come along and say, Martin, your work sucked, <laughs> then I'm I'm cool with that. Yeah. I'm cool with that. Yeah. What I don't want to do is lay any claim to truth based on my own subjective assessment. Yeah. No, this is this is really energising for me as well because I've, I really find that tension between wanting to um, talk about these the, the topics that I find important and I'm passionate about, talking about them creatively, but then the tension within academia and publishing officially and, and academically. And, and I, I like doing that as well, by the way. I don't want to not do that. But I also don't want to... To only be read by three people. Well, can I, the just, I just want to add something yeah. there for you. Um, my first book was a monograph of my PhD, mm -hmm. published by Routledge. Um, it was in criminology. Yeah. My second book, published by Routledge, was about my passion for research dissemination. So I moved from criminology into research methods. Mm -hmm. My third book, which is published by Policy Press, is in the area of black art. Mm -hmm. My fourth book, which is, starts next year, is in the role of criminological history. Mm. So I've straddled four genres. Yeah. Because the book I'm doing, at the, the, the one I'm doing next year, which is The Black Presence in Crime and Punishment mm. from 1750 to 1900. Now, interestingly enough, when I went to Polgrave, they said, no, we don't do history. Mm. The moment George Floyd was murdered, it was, this is no word of a lie. I was asked by Routledge, can you give us a proposal on your history project? Because mm -hmm. I'm connected to the National Justice Museum. Mm -hmm. Now, normally when you send a, a book proposal off, they come back within six weeks. The commission editor will send it out for review. Mm -hmm. they, I sent it out at nine o'clock in the morning. By midday, I got a response. Wow. <laughs> Three hours. Wow. No, what I'm saying is, is that's because that uneasy tension that you mentioned mm create self-doubt yeah because like where can i put it yeah if i was working with you and i said okay bridging what's your book really about what's the premise now you may be writing a book that you assume is criminal justice mm -hmm. but actually it's not it may be driven by history or art or something like that mm. so what i do i've got four books four different genres because i understand from a publisher i love publishing yeah. I, you know when I, you know when I in the black community, when I take a, when um, you ever seen Crocodile Dundee? There's a scene in New York when the guy pulls out a, a pen knife, and he pulls out this knife. Cool, and that's not a knife. Yeah. This is. Well, I'm in the community and I hear all of these activists, you know, bigging it up, yeah. rare, 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 and they'll be talking to a bag of youths. And they'll be filling them full of all sorts of stuff. The moment I pull out my books, it's like, yo, you've written a book. Why are you written a book? Mm. Because a book trumps an album. <laughs> you can take an album by Stormzy. Yeah. Yeah, they love it. They put it on there. They listen to it once, couple times. 
But that's not the same as a book because culturally, somebody that writes a book is different. different so what stages. I'm saying for me, if there's any consolation, that crisis that you're talking about mm. is is understandable because if you look at it, book, peer review, articles, ref, research, mm. I, none of my books I've ever published, I've sought permission from my department. Never. Mm. They come to me and say, what are you working on? I say, well, you know, after I've got the book deal, then I tell them. Yeah. <laughs> Every day they'll come to me and say, look, Mike, when are you going to bring research money into the university? I say, well, I'm just a lecturer. Right. I was a senior lecturer or a professor because I'm not, I'm not aspirational in terms of career progression. Mm. The problem is if you want to be an associate professor, then, yeah, you're going to have to have Play at least game. four articles yeah. in the ref, um, four publications. You're going to have at least one book. You're going to have to have an administrative duty that demonstrates that's what you're going to have to do. Mm. I chose not to do that. So mm. I prefer to earn less and have the freedom to produce and influence across the world, yeah. which it comes back to your wife, your family, because if your wife wants you to get that house and that car or you want to have kids, you will try and resource your lifestyle. Whereas I'm a servant of my, my work. Mm -hmm. And with my wife, she knows that a lot of what I do, I don't get paid for. Yeah. But what we get, is the kind of lifestyle that anybody would they'd pay everything for because we've got a very, very cheap, humble lifestyle mm. but with huge outcomes. Because my work is done around the world. Mm. And only that way is because I've... Imagine, in my university, when I, when I get the book deal next year, I'll be the only person in the university to have got three book deals with Routledge back-to-back. -back. <laughs> and I'm in six of the world's leading criminology textbooks right now. Mm. So when you have that body of work, it's no different to playing cards. So me and you's in a room, and you're my head of department. Mm -hmm. So you're on 60 grand a year. You, you've got the label professor, but you've got a PhD. So you then come to me and say, yo, mine. Let's talk about your output. Mm -hmm. So I said, right, let's, let's take your articles out first. He said, well, I've got eight articles and three books and a research project. So I take mine out, 25 articles, four books, a TV series, there, 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 20 podcasts. Mm. So I said, when I look at it, I've got a hell of a lot more stuff than you. And then let's put my community credibility here. Yeah. Let's put the fact I've worked in number 10 and my work's been done at the White House. Let's also then put over here, I've got credibility on the streets and in prison. Um, so the way I see it, you need to negotiate with me and not tell me what to do. Mm. Because if I walk away from you right now and take this out, there's a huge gap in the department. And mm. I'm sorry, but having 25 people in the department under the age of 30 can't fill that deficit. Yeah. Go back to my point. Speaking truth to power mm -hmm. is negotiating to say, look, I will give you what you ask for, but it's a negotiation. Yeah. It's not. You cannot impose it. It doesn't say in my job description. What it says in my job description, you have to demonstrate clear impact in the community. Well, Guardian, Sunday Times, Radio 4, Moral Maze, the list is endless. Mm. 
that's why I make sure that I'm connected to all these enclaves so that when that conversation comes up, they can't trip you up. Whereas if you don't have that, the one thing that you are is vulnerable Mm. because you'll be talking the talk, but you can't, you haven't walked it. So my, my thing is, is that for younger academics, it's about developing a route map and an action plan mm. that where you can combine your obligation to the institution alongside the freedom to explore what you want to do. Yeah. So it's better that you get a book deal, feed into the department, and then write the book that you want to write than not have a book deal at all. Mm. And what yeah. I've done... Trust me, I did a five-part series for BBC One recently, and I don't watch stuff. I don't read my stuff. I don't watch my stuff. I don't listen to my stuff. Um, I just am prolific. Yeah. But I'm, I'm very, very good at positioning it when it comes to leverage. Um, so from that point of view, I'm a hustler. Yeah. I'm a traditional, a real academic hustler. I'm Bugs Bunny <laughs> as an academic. That's me. If you yeah. see Bugs Bunny, that's me. But... <laughs> Imagine Bugs Bunny with a PhD. Yeah. Bugs Bunny exploited people's weaknesses. And I know the weaknesses of everybody that I'm speaking to because yeah. normally my street head kicks in and I do my homework. Yeah. So I'm a very, very hard worker, loyal to the discipline. But every time I put a book proposal in, I get a book deal. Mm-hmm. Every time I put an article in. And the reason I stopped publishing articles because the publicity I got through saying I'm not publishing no more articles, got me a book deal through Rallage, Data Verbalization, which is the same music that you're listening to on Spotify. All because I said, nah, I've found a more effective way. Because here's here's an interesting thing, yeah? Imagine you are a fairly bigoted, traditional scholar. Mm -hmm. But if the issue is metrics... Now, I had the latest thing for me, four, th- four and a half thousand people around the world have cited my name in their work. No. The relevance of it is, if you go on Spotify and listen to my track, and then you phone me up and said, mine, which article does that come from? Mm. Not only do you listen to my track, I can direct you back to the original article. Mm. So there's two forms of the same thing. Yeah. And then when I say that article is also featured in my latest book, <laughs> so you can see yeah, I can take one article yeah. and I can present it yeah. in three or four different ways what I understand I understand leverage I understand power I understand mm-hmm. how to communicate yeah. my confidence there's lots of things I'm not confident on but when it comes to my knowledge and freedom of expression mm. and all I do now is to work with people who are at the where you're at because it's not that you're not capable it's the support you need in building confidence, mm. in self-belief. If, if you look at Howard Becker's labeling theory, if you've been told all your life or at uni, you can't succeed unless you do this, yeah. you'll believe it. Yeah. So I look at it. You have to connect to people who have a track record of not breaking the rules, subverting those rules, not as a base of saying, I want to be like Martin, but as a base of looking in your own toolkit to see what are the tools that you need to transcend the expectations that you're not giving back to yourself. Now, that to me is about communication. It's about openness. It's about integrity. It's about sharing. But neoliberal environments are not about sharing. 
Yeah. So you're not you're in a competitive environment. Whereas when I do a single to hip hop, where's the competition for that? Yeah. When you when you write an article, what do you get? You get so which journal you're going in? Mm. Oh, I'm going in the British Journal of Criminology. So what's your article about? Oh, it's about rare, 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 and they go, yeah, well, I've written something similar, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm looking at this. Why don't you send it to theoretical criminology? No, I'm sitting. So you start to get, oh my God, he's, his article is going to get selected yeah. on mine. Yeah. Whereas what I do, I just go on Spotify. That's it. And then the publishers come to me. Yeah. Publishers will come to me and say, look, Mike, what, can you come and publish with us? And then it's like, why? I had a situation recently. There's a track on Spotify on COVID 19. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, Policy Press said, look, can you give us a blog on BAME and COVID? Mm-hmm. I wrote it and, I, and I, I looked at it and I thought 800 words. And I said, look, my community ain't going to read that blog. So my brethren, who's a hip hop producer, said, look, mine, speak it. Let me put a beat behind it. Mm. And that's, why, that's how it come about. Yeah. So we developed what's called a Jcast, which is a talking blog. Mm-hmm. Nobody does talking blogs with hip hop. Yeah. Everybody's got that nice music intro and welcome to the... With me, <laughs> now, nah, yeah. I just spit couple bars. The moment you put that beat on, man's on the road and saying, yo, Martin, I, heard, I, I hollered at your thing, you know. Mm. Why, Martin, what you said about COVID, I relate to that. My grandmother's going, see? Yeah, yeah. The moment that person does it, I'll be shopping in Tesco and I'll see the same you. Come, yo, yo, come here. Yo, blood. You see, my man's a doctor, you know. He's my friend. This is such and such. He's just come out of jail. Can you yeah. talk to him? Suddenly reach impact yeah so what i'm dealing with is for people like yourself it's 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 coming to terms with or to try and work out how institutionalized either you are mm. or how is the institutional behavior impacting on your dreams yeah and all I, all I can say to you is that 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 isolation of the ivory tower it's about broadening it so that you have unconditional support for an idea that's not rooted in metrics or a four-star journal. Mm. I chose to become a lecturer not to take that journey because mm. the expectation when you're a lecturer, I've published more than anybody in my department, but I've never had the imposition of those institutional links mm. because it's at the senior lecture and above where you start to kick in. Yeah. And so by me relinquishing my ambition and promotion, in favour of community connection and just being a basic lecturer. Yeah. I've had a far easier time of it. So that's why one of the first questions is how ambition, how ambitious are you? Yeah. I'm not going to criticise ambition. You know, I'm 63, I'm coming to the end of my career and I've had a fantastic life. But if you're in your 30s and you're buying a house and you've got to do stuff, things are different. Mm-hmm. There's not many people, you know, when people like me go, there ain't not many people, there's not a lot of people like me coming back because I'm seen as a character. Yeah. And that's only because I'm old school. I'm really old school. I like paper and pen. Yeah. You know, I like dial phones. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, um, I'm crap at technology. You know, I'm old, old school. I'm a storyteller. You know what I mean? I'm not gifted mm. in the art of, technical anything i'm just not and so i'm not i i I just not i don't have that layer of um angst on me because it's just alien to me 
what I'm taking from you is that, is that you're just incredibly focused in what you want, what you want to achieve, what will distract you from that. And I think that that's one of the things I'm going to take away from this is that, um, you know, like you've been saying, we, we are in this sort of neoliberal market of the university and we are pressured to do certain things. And some people, that's that's great for them and they genuinely want to do that. But I think a lot of us get into these kind of areas of work because we're really passionate about making a difference, even, you know, in small scale in certain ways. And so it may not be following that that sort of standardised path. That well, I, I, I want to give you an example where when you talk about focus and discipline, mm. this is one of the best examples. Um, I worked in a maximum security prison. Mm-hmm. And um, fast forward 25 years. 25 years before, I'd given a guy a book in this maximum security prison. It was Whitemore mm-hmm. Prison. And I was at a conference in London. And there was a guy in a trench coat. And every, every break time, he was like, 20, 30 feet away. Mm-hmm. So I, I really started to get worried because I thought this guy's going to do me something. Mm-hmm. He just appeared in the distance. Yeah. When it came to lunchtime, I did a presentation and he stood at the back. I thought, friggin' hell, he's in front of the door. I'm going to get rushed. You right. know what I mean? Have I upset somebody? Yeah. Anyway, he comes up to me and he goes, mine. I said, I'm really sorry for stalking, but I needed to know it was you. Mm. He goes, you met me 25 years ago in jail and you gave me a book and he said that book changed my life yeah and he said i've been carrying it for 25 years and he took it out and he says i want to give it you back and he says i want to introduce you to my two children oh. i want to introduce you to my wife he says because your commitment to me 25 years ago changed my life now that focus that commitment because it always predicated on the underdog. If there's one thing I can do for that individual. I've had another situation where a friend of mine who's a very well-known gang mediator, mm-hmm. uh, one night they beat up his auntie and he come to my house, knocked on the door, bam, 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 bam. Took me five hours. He was going to go and kill the guys that killed, uh, beat up his auntie. Mm-hmm. And it took me five and a half hours to talk him out of it. We went to London to do a rites of passage workshop. And he's a big guy, he's about 20 stone. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of, we were standing in a circle, holding hands, and he broke down. Mm-hmm. Physically broke down on the floor, crying. Yeah. And everybody, I was like, Bridget, what's up? And he just told everybody, he goes, you see this man here? And he was talking about me. He goes, he saved my life. He said, I could have gone to jail. He said, I... He said, everything in my life could have changed. And he said, it changed my life. The same guy yesterday now runs a major organization. And because he knows I'm coming to retirement, said, look, Martin, I want to help you out. I want to help you through the transitional phase. So the key thing is, it's about investing in people. Mm. What's really important, and it's, I go back to, I'm clear, I'm, I come from a street background, life's short, it's not a rehearsal, you only get one. So my time in academia, I'm passing through. Mm. Um, when I'm in there, I've made an impact, but that's not where my heart lies. Academia has given me the tools. All right, put it this way. 
in the community, I always wanted to build a bridge. But I didn't have the tools. I had a little spoon, a knife and a fork, some grass, shaky ground. What the PhD did give me, it gave me a digger, a forklift truck. It means now that I can build my own institution. It means that I can provide for this constituency that I've swept my backside over for mm. 40 years. Mm. They've tried to kill my career. They've tried everything. But with four books, 20-odd articles, a worldwide reputation, I've never strayed from it. I've never given an excuse. I've never broken rules. I've only subverted them. Why? Because I've remembered every ancestor that fell in slavery. The British Raj in India. I don't forget history. That's why when I talk about history, history has robbed non-white people of millions of people, millions of resources. Mm. It's robbed us. And I'm never going to forget that. But rather than me get mad, get even with society, why am I going to do that? Am I going to contest white privilege or am I going to be into black empowerment? Am I going to enable working-class white people to see that black people are inclusive, provided you're not racist? Mm. Or do I reinforce that, well, white people are superior on me, I'm going to be superior on you? No. I'm also saying to artists, brethren, there's more to life when you're spitting bars than murder and mayhem and talking about the police. There's love. Talk about George Floyd. Mm. That's where my politics comes in. You could never buy me off. You have to kill me first. My mom said it's better to be poor and free than live life a slave. You can't buy me off. Yeah. You put a gun to my head and you say, all right, either renounce your politics or I'm going to shoot you in the head. Or you shoot me in my head because once you shoot me, I've still got my four books, 21 articles, and somebody will come and do it. That's what scares people because there's nothing you can do to me that's going to... I'm scared a lot. I'm scared of spiders, snakes. Um, I'm scared in case me and my wife break up. You know, I've got those generic fears but when it comes to the liberty and the pursuit of happiness to me that's sacrosanct and I don't believe in being selfish enough to not want to support other people who in their own way want to move towards their freedom freedom will cost you if that's what you want I have freedom I have freedom but the, the price you pay is you don't get a lot of money you know, when they get rid of me, it's like, what do I do? I'll sell my art. I'll do poetry. I'll sing. I'll hustle. I'll go back to all the things I've been taught for moments like this. Mm. But for mans like yourself, and it's really important you hear me say this, one of my closest friends at the moment, he's 30, he's got a PhD, two masters, two books, and dozens of articles. He's 30. Oh. Very ambitious. Mm. And I've said to him, Regin, I love you, but our time's limited because... I'll do anything to support his ambition. Mm-hmm. See, so I'm not saying that ambition is wrong. Yeah. It's just not for me. Yeah. And it's about being honest. He says, look, Martin, I come from a poor background and I just want to have a period when I, I don't want to be poor. Yeah. And I could do it this way. Yeah. But if you're saying to me, yo, Martin, I wake up in the morning and I dream about certain things where it's elusive then that's when the dream maker kicks in. Because I can tell you this now. I mean, how old are you at the moment? 35. All right, you're 35. My eldest daughter's 44. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you think at 35, if you get to 50 and your dreams haven't come to reality, the midlife crisis that you'll get post-50 will be astronomically bad, especially when your prostate kicks in and you get diabetes. (laughs) My point being is, is existentially, we know that the inability to fool one's obligations to oneself is one of the reasons that men commit suicide and die prematurely. Yeah. Now, you're 35, so you can say, oh, I'll put it off for the next couple of years. But if you've hit dreams and desires at 35, then you're not 35. Because when you're at my age, I love. I look up a lot because I know that one day I'm not going to see the sky again. I, I marvel over grass and water because what I realize is the life that I've got is slowly starting to slip. So therefore, I live life like I ain't got no time left. Yeah. Me and my wife, we, we woke up recently and I looked at her and I said, one of us is going to go before the other because I felt that yeah. in the afterlife, I'd like the meadow where we're running across the grass in the afterlife. And that's not going to yeah. be the case. So I'm saying, for me, one of the things is, is to look critically at your past and to find where was the first point that you felt impeded by a dream, whether it's running at school or singing in a choir, because all you do is become an adult version of what you was when you was younger. So when somebody says you can't do this, somebody said that to you when you're six mm. or seven. Mm. But what happens is the older you get, the heart, the it becomes more hardened as a form of behaviour. So it then becomes pathological. It's like it goes from, why did you tell me I can't do it? I don't think I can do it. I don't think I should do it. I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. Yeah. And then you get to 50 and you realise you haven't retrained, you haven't got any skills and you have another pandemic coming. And what you realise is all you've got is a PhD, two books and some articles and nobody gives a damn because the music that you want to pursue, the flower arranging that you wanted to do, the, the, the naan bread that you wanted to produce with coriander in it. (laughs) Uh, You you didn't do. I've always wanted to do stand-up comedy. I did it. I always wanted to be a poet. Did it. I always wanted to write a TV. Did it. Everything I wanted to do. All I want to do now is to not go into a building and work from home and be with my wife Mm. 24-7. I I don't want to be with anybody else. I'm one of the few men that loves being with his wife. I never get bored of her. I, we've been together for ages, but I know when I finish this, we're going downstairs. I'll go downstairs, we'll get in the car, and we'll go and get Kentucky, and we'll sit on a side <laughs> road, and we'll just eat it. That's our, that's our romantic getaway, yeah. because we can't go to a restaurant. Yeah. So we have, we have Kentucky, and the reason I can do that is because I've got a PhD, and because I've got a privileged life, and because the university knows that I'll be up at five o'clock sending my emails. Mm. They know that I'm going to produce the goods. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not a blagger where I can't deliver. And I'm saying what I'm offering out in terms of our conversation is to say, look, don't be like me, but I can tell you this. I like being me. (laughs) I don't like the bits of me I don't like, but I like the freedom. Yeah. I've been able to realise my dreams. Yeah. 
All I would, you know, if there was a piece of advice, don't wait to get to 63 before you get where I am. Yeah. Get there, you know, when you're about 45, so that you can say, I've got another 25, 30 years. Me, I'll be 17, seven years' time, and I feel I'm, I'm into jazz, and the famous jazz musician Thelonious Monk, very famous. Mm-hmm. And one day, he just walked off the piano and he never came back. Mm. I've got a couple more years left, and that's it. I'm just, I've got three and a half thousand books I'm getting rid of. I've got 70,000 articles I'm deleting. I'm, I'm finally ready to just let go of everything. After, it's going to take two years, and then I'll just be stories and fun and after yeah. dinner speeches. But hmm. I'm looking forward yeah. to walking away from everything. Martin, so many, so many powerful messages, and I'm going to have to think on a lot of what you've said then. Uh, so much of it resonated, and I think so many people listening will have taken a lot from that. I, um, thank you for being so giving with with what you've what you've spoken to us about and this time now and um yeah i'd i'd like to let <laughs> let you go free yeah, to um no, to go well, get your kfc and uh, sitting in your me. car so listen it's been a great <laughs> pleasure omar i'm looking forward to future conversations definitely don't be absent for too long and pick the sense from the nonsense that i've said yeah <laughs> all right. right brilliant thanks so much take care okay thanks for listening a lot to ruminate on from today's episode I'd love to know what you thought about it and about any of the other episodes. Thank you for the people who have already reached out and let me know what they thought. I think I've got back to pretty much everybody who's done that, so thank you for that. You can find the pod on Twitter at Justice underscore Focus or me at Omar P. Khan. Look forward to hearing your thoughts. Cheers. Cheers.